Good morning. Alrighty. As you can see, I brought a Pepsi up. This is a Pepsi, and it's here, and it's part of my demonstration day. But um, as Tim was saying, I'm the youth director here um, at Church of the Valley. I have been for almost two years now. Wow, that went by quick. Um, I'm also a special education teacher over at Pioneer High School. Um, any Mustangs here? Woo. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, back. Yeah. Nice. Right on. Cool. Um, so anyway, this is my fifth year teaching. Um, I'm also on the teaching team, as Tim said, uh, which has been awesome. Um, and I'm I'm married to uh, Carissa Rudolph. Uh, we just had a baby, uh, Lacey J. Rudolph. She's five weeks old. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of had a, a an aha moment this morning. Um, how many parents are in here? Wow. It's nuts. I feel like I feel like you kind of know like what you're getting into, and then you become a parent. You're like, I had no idea. This is nuts. Why would anybody do this <laughs> willingly? Um, but it's awesome. But I wish they would tell you that it kind of also sucks sometimes. Um, anyway, so I, I, what I like to think of parenting is is it's almost like a, a an improv comedy show that you're like not the director of like at all. So I'm, I'm here uh, at, at my new apartment and trying to give my wife a, a little bit of extra sleep. And, uh, you know, you see Lacey and her eyes are just like, it's four in the morning. And she's like, yeah, let's party. And that's like the worst, like, feeling as a parent is like when it's time to go back to bed and you look at your kid and it's just like, oh, no, this is like definitely time to wake up. Like, oh, gosh. So anyway, the setting and she's like, you know, she's talking to me telepathically and she's like, dad, you know, it would be hilarious. What if, like, at the same time you really had to, like, go to the bathroom and you didn't have your double team help for mom? Like, what if I were to just, like, go nuts and start crying? And so, like, she totally did that. So she's like, okay, okay, wait, 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 are you listening? She's like, you're going you're gonna to take me in a pillow and you're going to put me on the bathroom floor while you're using the restroom. And I'm going to be going nuts meanwhile. So I'm like, oh, man, are you sure this is going to be funny? She's like, I'm positive. I'm positive. She's telling me all this telepathically. So I get there, I'm, I'm doing my thing, and uh, I rip off, she's going nuts, she's doing her part, so I rip off like a large piece of like toilet paper, this is this morning, I, I kid you not, like 4 a.m., and I'm like dangling it in front of her, and she's just like loving it, she's just cracking up, I'm like, wow, I finally have started to understand like this is like being a dad, this is being a parent, this is just a comedy show that's improv, but it's great. Um, yeah, with that, I, I'm going to pray. God, thank you for blessing me uh, with a child, Lord, that, that's pretty crazy. Um, God, I thank you for that gift, though. Um, I thank you that you show us mercy when we're pretty crazy. And, Father, I just want to acknowledge that you're here. You're going to speak whatever it is that you want spoken, and you will allow it to be heard by whoever wants, whoever you want to hear it. God, so would you open hearts? Would you open ears? Um, would this not be about me? Um, would this not even be about Jonah? Would it be about pointing people back to your son, Jesus, Lord, um, through loving repentance and obedience? It's in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so as the youth director and a shepherd in this church, it's an honor to be up here. Um, but I, I also want to acknowledge that I understand that it's a, it's a big responsibility sharing and teaching God's word. And, and I don't take it lightly, but I thank you um, that, that you guys, are, well, I guess you didn't have a choice. <laughs> But I thank you. I thank you just for being here and, and allowing me to teach that. 
Um, but I just want you to know that I don't take it lightly. Um, and one thing that I want to also highlight is we have the same spirit, capital S. And we teach the same values top to bottom, whether it's nursery, um, all the way up to, to middle school, high school, to big church, to young adults. We are, we are teaching the same values and equipping our students to not only read um, the text, but understand what it's saying and, and applying that to our lives. And that's awesome. I love being a part of a church that does that top to bottom. Um, but just know that, that we're pouring into your kids uh, just as you're getting poured in here. So with that, I want to do a little recap from, from the last message taught by Pastor Mike Miller. Um, if you were here last week, you learned a little bit about Tupac and how the condition of his broken situation and lifestyle was revealed to him. And that prompted him to this idea of changing directions as a society. We saw a similar response from the Ninevites and their sinful condition being revealed to them through Jonah's harsh message of justice, shouted at them in their own city, in their own house, from an outsider, a Jew, Jonah. Just think that I get a pretty vivid picture there is you got this guy coming in from a different country just shaking his fist, telling everybody that they're, they're going to be destroyed, right? And he's saying that with a little like, yeah. You're going down, right? That's pretty offensive. We also were introduced to a parallel of this situation played out in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached a harsh message to the different tribes of Israel at Pentecost. Amen. After Jesus had been resurrected and then ascended to heaven. So this Acts chapter 2, this very famous kind of message that Peter brings, it's cut into the heart. It's not beating around the bush. Peter shared that they, the Jews in their sin, they were the ones responsible for nailing the Messiah to the cross. And the, these people, they were cut to the heart by this message because God enabled that to happen. So I'm very visual. I'm very definition-oriented. Um, so I wanted to kind of break down this idea of repentance in a couple little tangible ideas. So the definition that we kind of came up with here is that you hate the sin that you once loved, and you love the son that you didn't once believe in. And it's God-gifted. It's not something that you could just grab on your own. It has to be gifted by God for you to see the sin as something disgusting and fall in love with his son whom he sent for that purpose. The practical, tangible definition of repentance here is recognizing what you're doing is wrong. Your mind is then changed about it. And then you change direction practically. The evidence of biblical faith is that we repent. It's not that, you know, you start repenting and then, oh, yeah, the faith comes. Oh, yeah, I see what you did there, God. That's not how it works. You are changed by this idea of this gospel, this scandalous gospel, and that leads to an actionable repentance. And that's awesome that that's God-gifted. And there's a biblical representation here. I, I, I was kind of brought to this deeper kind of meaning of repentance and what that actually is. It's dying to yourself only to be raised to life by the Holy Spirit. And then what that means is it's no longer me living, I'm not the pilot anymore, but Christ living through me. That's the representation there. It's huge. It's huge. Humbling. So let's dive right into Jonah chapter 3 verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So for a king, especially one in Assyria during this time, this is such an unexpected response. 
He's taking off his royal robes. He's acknowledging that he'd been leading the wrong way. Wow. He's in a different country doing what he thinks is best, right? I don't know what he's thinking at this point. And then he's met with this message, this harsh message that wasn't sugarcoated. And he takes off his royal robes acknowledging, hey, I screwed up. And he covers himself with sackcloth. I'm not really familiar with using the word sackcloth. How many of you have used the word sackcloth this week? Really? Wow, that's, that's one more than last uh, service. <laughs> so this idea of sackcloth, I kind of had to dig a little bit to, to kind of better understand this, this reference here, but it symbolized submission. It symbolized grief, sadness, self-humiliation, recognizing that what you're doing is wrong, stripping yourself of, of kind of your status or who you are, and putting on this sackcloth, this kind of ugly sack of potatoes. And that's evidence in First and Second Kings um, when this is kind of the actionable piece of repentance. Um, if we could drop the next slide up there too. This is kind of a little animated illustration of what that might have looked like. Deep distress, humiliation. They're putting dirt on top of their heads and wearing these kind of like gross-looking sackcloth robes. So this humble act of repentance by the king and the Ninevites was not made possible by their intellect. It wasn't made possible by their empathy, being good kind of people. It wasn't made possible by their logic, their ability to kind of crack that code and be super smart. It wasn't by their intuity. It wasn't even by Jonah. I think that was the mistake that I was, I was living under, is that it's, it's not even Jonah was the one that did it. This is solely because God's mercy revealing to them the magnitude of their sin. That's, that's kind of wild. I know that's kind of just like counted as lip service sometimes. God's mercy in the form of him revealing to you what the issue is, that's harsh, but necessary. Sometimes we're there and we, and we see it as something that's not that bad, right? And we need God's mercy in the form of truth to lead us to actionable repentance, changing of directions, so you see here, God was completely responsible for going before Jonah and laying the framework here for this king and country to be cut to the heart by the truth of Jonah's message, declaring that Nineveh's actions were sinful and leading to destruction. There was an inherency about this sin. It wasn't that God was just coming in and, and punishing them for that. Their sin was ultimately leading to a destruction. One truth that was really kind of spearheaded here is that biblical repentance is always a work of God. Real repentance. There, there's faking it, right? I mean, we all have been there or know somebody. You've been there. Or you fake repentance. Oh, you have this beautiful plan. You wrote it down. It's on a checklist on your iPhone, right? It's maybe on this poster board right when you walk into work. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. That might not necessarily be real repentance. Real repentance is a work of God. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Opponents must gently be instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. This is a gift. This is granting of repentance. So, People in this culture believed that they could live forever in heaven with God if they were, air quote, good enough and kept all of God's laws. Sounds a little bit nothing like today, right? 
Totally, right? We think if we just do a little bit enough, he owes us one, we can put it in our back pocket and save that for later, and then we can screw up and we'll be good, right? Wrong. God gave the law to show people that no matter how good they were, they could never measure up to God's perfect holiness. The law was given to show people their need for a savior. The law was not given so you could work harder, do better, and then become this presentable gift to God, right? The law was given to show you, to show me. Take this as a personal me here. The law was given to show you your need for a savior. That's deeper implication there. In James chapter 2, verse 10, James, Jesus' half-brother, says, Suppose you keep the whole law but trip over just one part of it, then you are guilty of breaking all of it. That's the harsh reality here. Who wants a Pepsi? Oh, Robbie, come on up. I didn't plan this or anything. Robbie, uh, I've gotten the privilege of growing up with him, and, and we played college baseball together. I got the opportunity to help uh, baptize him. Robbie, you love, you love Pepsi, right? Yes. So what do you love about it? Is it the taste or is it the refreshing ability of it? Yeah, it's, it's amazing, right? So let's, oh, yeah, that's a good sound, right? Let's take a peek here. Oh, wow. You could hear it. You could smell it. You could even, I could like feel it tickle my face with the bubbles. It's beautiful. Pepsi. So, this is pretty good, right? You're good. You want this, right? All right. Here you go. You, you don't want it, right? He doesn't want it. This drink is now spoiled. Who wants that? Does anybody else want it? Maybe I could offer it to the rest of the, the group here. No? Okay. I figured, right? Just as one drop of spit ruined that entire Pepsi, one sin, even little, breaks the perfect relationship God had with his people. Because of the sin that we brought into the relationship, we are no longer pure like God is pure. No good deeds can undo the sin in our lives. Just like I can never get all the spit molecules out of that Pepsi. Even the good things that we do, apart from God, are viewed as filthy rags. How many of you can, can resonate with that Pepsi and think of your life as something that's like, oh, it's, it's pretty good. There's a, lot, there's a lot of Pepsi in there, right? That's a lot of good stuff. There's only a little bit of spit, right? It's, it's okay, right? The whole thing's probably good. Just don't tell them, right? No, that little bit of spit makes it unappealing, it's spoiled. Nobody wants it. In Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Let me show you something now. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. So I'll give you a little bit of context because we really like to lead, read Scripture in context that it was written. We want to know kind of what went on right before this, kind of calibrate ourselves so that we could better understand what the writer is saying. So Jesus had just crossed over the Jordan River and into Judea, teaching the crowds, and he just talked about how everyone must inherit the kingdom of God like a child. When I think of a child, I think of just open arms, 
right, submission, fully recognizing that, man, we can't do this and we're reaching out. So he was approached by a rich young ruler who was a Jew that had been gifted the luxury of being taught the Old Testament law at a young age and was under the impression that following the law good enough was what made him right with God. So let's dive in. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. (laughs) Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The rich young ruler believed he could work his way to heaven and that his sin wasn't too bad to the point that he couldn't even see it as sin. And kind of referencing the Pepsi here, you might not even see that as that bad. Is it bad? Yeah. Jesus, though, oh, Jesus, in his mercy, revealed the ruler's idol of money to him. And called him to let go of it and follow him. It's an invitation. It's an invitation, a merciful invitation, revealing the issue, leading him to the tangible, practical form of repentance, ditch the money and follow me. But he's not going to make him follow him. He's not going to throw handcuffs on him. The ruler saw money as his identity. He went away sad. And we as readers are led to believe that this young ruler did not repent. Keep in mind, this is a Jew who had been studying the Old Testament since he was a young boy. He had that in his backpack. The king of Nineveh had a different response to his sin being revealed to him, though. The king of Nineveh understood the magnitude and the implications of the spit in his Pepsi. Similar to the Acts 2 message spoken by Peter at Pentecost to the scattered tribes, This king was cut to the heart by Jonah's message and responded through actionable repentance. God spoke to the hearer exactly what needed to be heard. There's a great responsibility sharing God's word, but we as teachers get to bask in the fact that we know that God's going to let whoever hear what he wants them to hear when he wants them to hear it. Praise God. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Verse 36, this is kind of after the fact of that really harsh, harsh message spoken by Peter at Pentecost to these scattered tribes of Israel. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Good question. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's pretty good news. When I read this, I can't help but think that Jonah might have been a little bit bummed out, a little bit pissed off to hear that God's mercy would eventually be lavished upon people who were far off. And also that the Jews, him being included, wouldn't be the only recipients of this gracious gift, but that they would also end up being the ones to nail Jesus to the cross. Let's read on to hear the king of Nineveh's Acts 2 type of cut-to-the-heart response. In verse 7 of chapter 3, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king was so cut to the heart by the sins of he and his people that he made a decree to change how their whole society was functioning. That's huge. You got this king that's running things the way that he thinks that they should be ran, right? Somebody telling him, no, that's the, you're screwing it all up and you're actually going to lead your, your city to destruction. Being cut to the heart by that, making a formal decree to your people and telling them to stop. Animals being covered in sackcloth. This is huge. The entire nation was led to repentance, and they covered even their animals in sackcloth to show this. He chose to lead his people away from their current path that would inherently bring them destruction, even though the king had this freedom not to change anything. Nineveh was enabled to see their sin for what it was, which led them to repent and change directions, saving them from their immediate destruction that they would have endured. With that, I want to quote Pastor Mike Miller from last week, throwing it way back. God hears the plea of the wicked and responds to their repentance with mercy. How good is that? And sometimes that mercy isn't exactly the way that we would have drawn it up. Praise God for that. Let's re-examine uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. From the king is the decree. He says, Who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. What this text shows is that God's word was spoken to a pagan nation that cut straight to their heart and led them to an actionable change in their social custom. This was an immediate cut to the heart type of response by the king of Nineveh and his people and was only made possible by God himself. Don't miss that. God is able to soften hearts and shape them using truth accompanied by his mercy. God is able to soften hearts, shape them using his truth accompanied by his mercy. That's, that's a lot there. That's a lot to understand. Is we have these hardened hearts as people. Something went wrong. There's an issue, right? And God wants to come in in truth, not 
tickling our ears, telling us, okay, you can have a little bit of that, and then, you know, we'll kind of gradually over time do this. No, he's saying he's going to shape you using his truth, and that, in turn, is his mercy lived out through his word. In verse 10, he goes on, he says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. What we see here is God's gifting repentance to a pagan society. God demonstrates his mercy on this society by sparing them from the destruction that they were inevitably bringing on themselves. I don't want you to miss this. This Old Testament foreshadowing of the true love story found in the gospel, while we were enemies of God in our sin, God made his way to us by sending Jesus to be sacrificed for us, setting our relationship right with him, saving us from the inherent destruction that our sin brought out in our lives which ultimately leads to death. The Apostle Paul says it best in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the great news. So let's flash forward. Jonah is not very happy now with God after this. His merciful decision to spare Nineveh. In fact, he was really looking forward to God demonstrating his justice and wiping out this nation, because in Jonah's mind, the Ninevites were most deserving of God's wrath. Couldn't be them. Jonah's repentance, though, was more predicated on his circumstance, being in the belly of a fish, and an attitude that said, I'm going to do what you say, and I'll trust you, God, as long as this works out in a way that I could agree with and see a world-type justice play out. Then we're good. This response from Jonah is similar to the rich young ruler in the book of Mark. Because they both have this I follow God jersey on, they're repping that hard, but the real issue is in their heart and why they're trying to follow and obey God in the first place. Nineveh, however, a pagan society that did not know God, got a glimpse of him and his justice through Jonah's prophecy, with a side order, their own sinful condition being revealed to them. They were cut to the heart and changed direction. Nineveh changed their behavior out of reverence for God and acknowledgement of the sin in their life. God's the only one that can truly cut people to the heart in a way that leads to real repentance and obedience that acknowledges that his way is better than our way. I love that. He's the only one that could cut to the heart. He's the only one that could lead us to repentance. He's the only one that we could truly obey whose way is higher and better than ours, even for our own life. So I'm going to leave you with this. Are you any of these people or these groups of people? Are you like Jonah? Are you fleeing from repentance and choosing to focus on everyone else's sin? Are you disappointed when people don't get what, what we think they deserve? Or are we like the rich young ruler? You justify your sin. You justify your idols in a way that focuses more on the good you've done rather than your identity and goodness being found solely in Christ alone. Or are you like the Ninevites? You don't have a lot of biblical knowledge. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but you've heard a message of God's justice, maybe in the past or recently, and you've been cut to the heart by it. You want to change, and you see areas where you need to repent. That's good. You're seeking out God's mercy, and you want to better understand how to obey and follow this God. But I don't want us to look at a fourth person. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15 where we're going to read a story about a man who had two sons. 
This parable is known as the lost son or the prodigal son, but really it's the lost sons, plural. It's one that all of us can look to. It's one that all of us kind of go between. We're either the younger brother or the elder brother at some point or currently. Today we're going to study about the younger brother and see how this parable links itself, even though it's a parable, even though Jesus speaks this and this was not historical other than he told this story, how this parable, parable links itself to the historical figure of Jonah. So Luke chapter 15 verse 11 says, as Jesus is telling this parable to a lot of teachers of the law, Pharisees and, and Jewish people, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. What this younger brother is saying is that he doesn't want to wait for his inheritance. When did people usually get their inheritance? The same time we normally get the inheritance. When our father would die. So to an extent, he's saying, Father, I wish you were dead because I want my money. But the father obliged this son's incredibly selfish request, and the text says that the father divided the inheritance between the two sons, them, they. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living, as you do, apparently. This younger brother, similar to Jonah, had a place to be, but he chose to head in the direction that he wanted to go. And what I must tell you is that all of us run from God either obviously or indirectly. That's something that we constantly do. That's part of the human condition. And we see Jonah in the first chapter running away from God, doing what he thought was best, and doing it based on his own will. Well, I want free will. Well, your free will stinks. I'm just telling you that right now. You and I do this when we want to either get ahead of God or fast forward our sanctification or when we know what we ought to do, but we end up doing the opposite. Then we shake our fist at God, why'd you let me be here? Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that entire whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is a scandalous parable because Jewish people had nothing to do with pigs. They were a dirty animal. The younger brother, like Jonah, decided to go his own way and yet ran into some serious roadblocks to his decisions. The younger brother ran out of money. Jonah ran into a storm. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So you have this younger brother who's had these experiences with that seem like an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity to make amends. The younger brother sees this situation as an opportunity, check this out, for self-preservation. Have we ever turned to God because we just wanted to have self-preservation? To at least be fed and taken care of like all of his father's other servants. Jonah, on the other hand, wanted to sacrifice himself in the first chapter that we remember when he was in the boat, but in my opinion, when he wanted to sacrifice himself by being thrown into the water, he was not doing it for the benefit of the sailors, he was doing it because he would rather be dead than obey God, not because he didn't want to obey any of God's commands, 
but he hated the Ninevites more than he loved and revered his God. And so do we struggle with hating someone more than we actually love God? Have you ever said, I can't believe that God would save that type of person? Guess what? God saves that type of person because he saved us. So he then gets heaved, Jonah gets heaved into the ocean, and what happens? The text says that the Lord provides a fish. I think when I heard this story when I was younger with the felt boards and all that stuff, when my grandma made me go to church every once in a while, I remember the whale, which was totally biblically incorrect, mind you, but that whale on the felt board, which was really a fish, was there, and it tried to eat Jesus or eat Jonah. That's not what this text says. The Lord provided a fish. The Lord provided an opportunity for self-reflection. The Lord provides an opportunity for repentance. And guess when we realize we need to turn? It's usually when we've head so far in the wrong direction that we realize it's a dead end. And Jonah seems to take this opportunity. What does he do? The text says that he makes vows to God in chapter 2, and he exalts God for whom salvation is possessed by. Verse 20b in Luke 15. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. It says the father then ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Hmm. The son had realized his need. He had turned away from his own way. He had headed back to the father, and the father, filled with compassion for his son, ran to him. This is scandalous. As Jesus is telling this parable to a bunch of Jewish people, Jewish men did not have Fitbits. They did not need steps. They did not run. This was undignified. This did not happen. But the father runs to him, and he kisses him. Jonah, as he was running away, receives this amazing grace in the fish that God provides him to save him from the sea and the storm that would ultimately kill him if he continued to try to tread water in that storm. Like the father in the parable, God intervenes when he doesn't have to, even if God was justified in letting Jonah die, God still intervened. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I just picture the father in this parable going, shh. Jonah has this similar tone in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, from the belly of the fish, or starting in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. You know what I don't like about this? It, I mean, granted, we don't know the tone, but it kind of sounds like he's still making it about himself. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. You know what, Jonah? You're not. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah has good theology, but Jonah doesn't do things right. And the younger son and Jonah both to an extent, realize their need and that what they were doing was in conflict with God's will for their lives. In verse 22 of Luke 15, the response of the father is this, but the father doesn't even acknowledge his son, it seems like, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Jews know how to party. Just telling you that right now. And the father is not only gracious in allowing his son to come back, but he loves him. He loves him more than any of us can truly understand because he does not come back. This younger brother, this son of his, does not come back as a servant, but he comes back as a son, which is what the robe and the sandals and the ring signify. So I don't want you to miss this. We are not employed as servants in the kingdom. You and I are adopted as children of the God Most High. So it's not us trying to work our way to him, and then he goes, oh, you're kind of good, come with me. No, 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 no. We are adopted, not because of our goodness, but because of Christ's goodness. And we are adopted into the family, not as servants, not as slaves, but as children. But when we are children, we want to do what God wants us to do because we love him and we're grateful to him for what he has given to us. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. We see this reluctant prophet. That's the nicest word I could have used. We see this reluctant prophet who failed to do what God had told him to do. In fact, he headed in the exact opposite direction of what God had commanded. He did a reverse repentance. That's what he did. But here's Jonah not getting what he deserved but being treated as a prophet once again by the word of the Lord coming to him for a second time. See, we have a God who is a God of second chances. Do any of you guys need second chances? And thirds and fourths and fifths, and we have a God who is patient with us. And as Jesus concludes, speaking of the younger brother, this prodigal son, the one who wanted to do the opposite of what the father had told him to do, we see the father's heart for his son, for one who truly repents biblically, and I want you to know this is one of the most beautiful verses in scripture. In Luke 15, verse 24, Jesus says this, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Found. So they began to celebrate. The father celebrates redemption. He celebrates his children who turn from their sin. He throws a party to have the son who was once lost, who is now found, who was once dead, who is now alive. He throws a party. Why? Because he is celebrating when any of us turn to him. You and I are like the son who was once lost but now is found. We once were dead in our transgressions. According to Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to all live. All means all. But we are made alive. We are made alive through Christ alone, through faith alone, because of God's grace alone. And that is why we praise our God week in and week out, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. Understanding the gospel means we can celebrate when anyone repents. No matter how bad or, and for those listening on podcast, good, there's air quotes, they once were. Understanding the gospel means we can celebrate anyone who truly repents no matter what they were like before Christ. Because no matter who we once were, I can promise you, you are in need of grace. 
So much grace that most of us can't even fathom how loving and personal and beautiful and perfect and merciful and gracious our God is to save sinners like us. Next week, we'll see how Jonah also relates to this older brother in this parable and how he was just as lost.